0: Section 9 of the Living Animals of the World, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 2, Book 2, Chapter 8. Screamers, Ducks, Geese, and Swans by W.P. Piecraft, familiar as are most of our readers with all save the first mentioned of these birds yet few probably suspect how great a wealth of forms this group displays all are more or less aquatic in their habits of heavy build with long necks and small heads short legs and short wings and tails the young are hatched covered with a peculiar kind of down which more nearly resembles that of the ostrich tribe than the down of other birds, and they run about or accompany their parents to the water either immediately or a few hours after hatching. Several species have become domesticated and, in some cases, have given rise to peculiar breeds, whilst many are much in demand for the purpose of enlivening ornamental waters. The least known members of the group are the very remarkable and extremely interesting screamers of South America, of which there are three species these are large birds presenting some resemblances to the game birds on one hand and the geese on the other not only the beak but the skull in certain characters recalls that of the game birds the body may be described as goose-like but in the longer legs and enormous toes which are not connected by a web these birds recall the megapodes or mound builders the screamers are generally regarded as primitive members of the group with which they are now associated but in many respects they are quite peculiar not the least interesting of their habits is the great predilection they observe for soaring in the air at immense altitudes uttering the while the curious cry to which they owe their name several birds often do this at once yet stranger is the fact that they not seldom gather in vast flocks to sing in concert. Mr. Hudson, for instance, states that the species known as the Crested Screamer on one occasion surprised him by an awful and overpowering burst of melody which saluted him from half a million voices at an out-of-the-way spot in the Pampas one evening at nine o'clock and again once at noon. He heard flock after flock take up their song round the entire circuit of a certain lake each flock waiting its turn to sing and only stopping when the duty had been performed like the gannet these birds are richly supplied with air cells between the body and the skin and between many of the muscles so highly are these cells developed that it is said a crackling sound is emitted when pressure is applied to the skin the wings of these birds are armed each with a pair of powerful and sharp spurs recalling those of certain of the plover tribe though in the latter only one spur is present on each wing the division of the remainder of this group into ducks geese and swans is generally recognized but no hard and fast line can yet be drawn between the several sections we must regard them as representing adaptations to peculiar modes of life which appear to be most marked in the duck-like form these may be divided into freshwater ducks saltwater ducks spiny-tailed ducks and mergansers of the freshwater ducks the most familiar is the wild duck or mallard this is a resident british bird and also the parent of the domesticated stock which frequently closely resembles the wild form in this species as with the majority of the freshwater ducks the males wear a distinctive livery but the males for a few weeks during the summer assume more or less completely the livery of the female a process aptly described as going into eclipse the assumption of the female dress at this season is necessary since it harmonizes completely with the surrounding foliage and so effectually conceals the bird at a time when it is peculiarly helpless for as with all birds the quills or flight feathers are cast off by the process known as moulting once a year but instead of being replaced in pairs and the flight remaining unaffected they are shed all at once so that escape from enemies must be sought by concealment usually among birds the male has the more powerful voice but with the mallard and its allies the reverse is the case the female giving forth the loud familiar quack quack whilst the note of the male sounds like a feeble attempt to answer its mate but smothered by a cold in the head this peculiar and characteristic subdued voice is associated with a remarkable bulb-shaped bony enlargement at the bottom of the windpipe just where it branches off to the right and left lungs, the female being without this swelling. The nest is composed of grass and lined with down plucked by the female from her own breast with the sole object, it is generally believed, of keeping the eggs warm. But it is possible that the down is removed as much for the sake of bringing the warm surface of the body in closer contact with the eggs. The site chosen for the nest is exceedingly varied. Usually the nest is placed on the ground and near the water but sometimes in a hedgerow or in a wood and occasionally in trees and instances are on record where the deserted nests of hawks and crows have been appropriated at such times the young seem to be brought to the ground by the parent which carries them down in her bill it is some time before the wings of the young birds are big enough to carry them indeed they are quite full grown as far as the body is concerned at this stage they are known as flappers advantage at one time was taken of their helplessness in the sport known as flapper shooting on other occasions numbers of people assembled and beat a vast tract of country driving these young flappers before them to a given spot where nets were placed in which as many as one hundred fifty dozen have been taken at one time fortunately this practice has been abolished by act of parliament several very distinct domesticated breeds of ducks have been derived from the mallard the commonest breed differs but little save in its great size from the wild parent form but the most esteemed are those known as the rouen and aylesbury The penguin duck is the most aberrant and the ugliest of these breeds, having a peculiarly upright, awkward carriage and very small wings. The saltwater ducks, or diving ducks, are for the most part of a heavier build than the foregoing species, and many are of a somber coloration. All the species are expert divers and, in consequence, have the legs which are short placed far backwards, and this causes them to assume a more upright carriage when on land, the curious bony bulb at the base of the windpipe found in the fresh water species becomes in the salt water forms greatly enlarged and its walls completely ossified, leaving large spaces to be filled by peculiarly delicate sheets of membrane. The majority of the species in this section frequent the open sea, but some occur inland. One of the most useful and at the same time most ornamental of this section is the eider duck, the male in full plumage being a truly magnificent bird the female as in the majority of ducks is clad in sober colors in iceland and norway the eider duck is strictly protected a fine being imposed for killing it during the breeding season or even for firing a gun near its haunts this most unusual care is however by no means of a disinterested kind but is extended solely that certain privileged persons may rob the birds of their eggs and the down on which they rest the latter being the valuable eider down so much in demand for bed coverlets and other purposes quote the eggs and down end quote says professor newton quote are taken at intervals of a few days by the owners of the eider fold and the birds thus kept depositing both during the whole season every duck is ultimately allowed to hatch an egg or two To keep up the stock. Mr. W. C. Shepard gives an interesting account of a visit to an eider colony on an island off the coast of Iceland. On landing, he says, the ducks in their nests were everywhere. Great brown ducks sat upon their nests in masses and at every step started from under our feet. It was with difficulty we avoided treading on some of the nests. On the coast of the opposite shore, was a wall built of large stones about three feet high and of considerable thickness. At the bottom, on both sides of it, alternate stones had been left out so as to form a series of square apartments for the ducks to nest in. Almost every apartment was occupied. The house itself was a marvel. The earthen walls that surrounded it and the window embrasures were occupied by ducks. On the ground the house was fringed with ducks. On the turf slopes of its roof We could see ducks and a duck sat on the door scraper the grassy banks had been cut into square patches about eighteen inches having been removed and each hollow had been filled with ducks a windmill was infested and so were all the outhouses mounds rocks and crevices the ducks were everywhere many were so tame that we could stroke them on their nests and the good lady told us there was scarcely a duck on the island that would not allow her to take its eggs without flight or fear end quote. the nest is composed externally of seaweed and lined with down which is plucked by the female from her breast as incubation proceeds till eventually it completely conceals the egg. each nest yields about one-sixth of a pound and is worth on the spot from twelve to fifteen shillings a pound the poachers scalps, golden eyes and scooters are relatives of the eider duck But since all resemble the latter in their general mode of life, we need not consider them here. The mergansers and smews, to which reference has been made, differed markedly from all the ducks so far considered in the peculiar formation of the bill, which is relatively long and narrow, with its edges armed with sharp, tooth-like processes projecting backwards towards the back of the mouth. These processes are really only horny spines, and have no relation to teeth, although they are used as teeth would be for holding slippery prey, such as fish, which form the greater part of the diet of these birds. So far, in all the ducks which we have considered, the male differs conspicuously from the female in plumage, but in the forms we are now about to describe, both sexes are colored alike. The first is the common shell drake, which seems to lie somewhere on the borderland between the ducks and the geese. It is a very beautiful bird conspicuously marked with broad bands of orange chestnut, white and black. The beak, being coral red in color, and further ornamented by a peculiar fleshy knob at its base, serves to set off the glossy, bottle-green color of the head and neck. As appears to be inevitably the case, where both sexes are colored alike, the female builds her nest in a hole, generally a rabbit burrow, whilst the young have a distinct livery, duller in tone than that of the parent the female sheldrake breeds in britain and may be frequently seen at sea flying in small parties which have been likened to a flock of butterflies the geese include birds of somewhat conspicuous coloration besides a considerable number of more subdued aspect the sexes are distinguished by different names the female being known as the goose the male as the gander whilst the young is the gosling as we have already mentioned There is no hard and fast line to be drawn between these three sections of the group. The ducks are connected by the Sheldrakes with the geese, though the spur-winged goose, the Egyptian and Orinoco geese, and certain other species which cannot be alluded to on this occasion. The spur-winged geese, of which there are two species, are African birds and derive their name from the long spur seated on the wing. A still more remarkable form is the half-webbed goose so called from the fact that its feet are only partially webbed it has a black-and-white plumage a hooked beak and a large warty prominence on the front of the head it spends most of its time perched on the branches of the australian tea trees and rarely enters the water the windpipe is peculiar being coiled in several folds between the skin and the breast muscles from these peculiar forms we pass to the true geese the largest living species is the chinese or guinea goose of eastern siberia regarded as the stock from which the domesticated geese of eastern countries have been derived european domestic geese have been derived from the gray or lag goose a species at one time exceedingly common in england breeding in considerable numbers in the fen districts where the young were frequently taken and reared with the large flock of domesticated geese commonly kept at that time for the sake of their feathers the lag goose however has long ceased to breed in england though a few still nest in scotland the most important breeds derived from the lag are the toulouse and the emden other british species are the bean goose pink-footed and white fronted geese and the black brent and barnacle geese in all of which the sexes are precisely similar in coloration and subdued in tone. In the New World, some very beautiful white geese are found, which are still more interesting in that the females have a different coloration. These are the kelp and upland geese of Patagonia and the Falkland. The female of the kelp goose is a brownish-black above and black barred with white below. Whilst the female of the upland goose is rufous and black in color, The latter may be seen in London Park. Lastly, we have a few species known for their small size as pygmy geese of Australia, India, and Africa. Perhaps the best known is the Indian species called the cotton teal. These are tiny birds resembling small ducks rather than geese and dive admirably, a feat which the larger species do not perform. The swans are linked with the geese through a very beautiful South American species known as the Cobus swan it is the smallest of all the swans pure white in color save the tips of the greater wing quills which are black and the coral red bill and feet of all the swans the best known is the mute swan the semi domesticated descendants of which are so common on ornamental waters for hundreds of years the latter were jealously guarded none but the larger freeholders being allowed to keep them and then not without a license from the crown with this license was coupled an obligation to mark each swan with a particular mark cut with a knife or other instrument through the skin of the beak whereby ownership might be established it would seem that these swans and their descendants were not derived from native wild stock but were introduced into england it is said from cyprus by richard i at the present-day large swanneries Have almost ceased to exist. Perhaps the largest is that of the Earl of Ilchester at Abbotsbury, near Weymouth. In 1878 between 1300 and 1400 swans were to be seen there at one time, but latterly the number has been reduced to about half. Although swans do not perhaps stand so high in the general esteem as table delicacies as with our forefathers, there are yet many who appreciate the flesh of this bird but the st helen's swan pit at norwich is the only place in england where they are systematically fattened for the table here from seventy to two hundred cygnets as the young swans are called caught in the neighboring rivers are placed early in august and fed upon cut grass and barley till christmas when they are fit for table weighing when dressed about fifteen pounds and fetching if purchased alive at the pit about two guineas each the pit is constructed of brickwork and about seventy-four feet long thirty-two feet wide and six feet deep the water admitted from the river being about two feet deep the food is placed in floating troughs the birds quote when so disposed end quote says mr southwell quote, leave the water by walking up a sloping stage and thus obtain access to a railed-in enclosure where they may rest and preen themselves the beautiful swan-like carriage so familiar in the floating bird seems to belong only to the mute swan the other species of white spawns carrying the neck more or less straight and keeping the wings closely folded to the body no greater anomaly could at one time have been imagined than a black swan for centuries it was considered to be an impossibility we owe the discovery of such a bird to the dutch navigator wilhelm de vlaming who more than two hundred years ago captured the first specimen at the mouth of what is now known in consequence as the swan river a year after their capture accounts reached england through the burgomaster of amsterdam and these were published by the Royal Society in 1698. The bird is now fairly common on ornamental waters, where its sooty black plumage set off by pure white quill feathers and coral red bill contrasts strongly with the typical snow-white mute swan generally kept with it. Equally interesting is the handsome black-necked swan of South America. In this species, the plumage is pure white, save that of the neck, which is black. The distribution of this species is practically the same as that of the Corsacoba swan. Breeding freely in confinement, it has become a fairly common bird on ornamental waters. It shares with the mute swan the reputation of gracefulness when afloat, swimming with the neck curved and wings raised. End of Section 9. Recording by Tom Mack.